And so in just a minute, you'll get to decide whether the sermon is a good one or a boring one. But before then, um, as was mentioned earlier, we are supporting uh, the ministry called Bridge of Hope here in, uh, in the month of December. And so we have a representative here with us today. Um, my friend Scott Dorsey is here, and he's going to share a little bit about what, what Bridge of Hope has been up to and some of the particulars and specifics about, about that ministry and, and even uh, what, what God has been doing. And so this is, this is Scott's first time here at Waterway Church. And he even said, it's been a while since you've been in Oxford, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so I saw you got the little Superman down there at the bottom of your tie. Of course. So you flew in this Super morning? Super Scott. Super Scott. There we go. Well, Super there Scott, go. can I pray for you? Please do. Lord, I thank you that we have a chance to be together today, and I pray that you will bless my brother Scott as he gets ready to share what it is that you've put on his heart about what you're doing in this world. Lord, we love you, and help us to serve you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you share with us? Yes, sir. Thank you. Now, Pastor, Pastor Jesse... Can I look for the sheep too? Absolutely. Okay. But don't tell anybody where you find them. Telling a Baptist pastor not to tell somebody. I'm going to pray on that one. So again, thank you all, Waterway, for allowing us to come this morning. Um, thank Pastor Jesse for sharing with us. And we want to first thank you for your ongoing support of Bridge of Hope in all the things that we do. Now, I'm going to keep it quick. That's, a, that's an almost impossible task for an old Baptist preacher, because when we say amen, that's five minutes by itself. <laughs> so I'm going to try. I'm going to try. But how many of us woke up this morning out of our bed? Who, who slept in a bed last night? Amen. Who had shelter over their head? Who had some breakfast this morning? Now, we're not going to ask what kind of breakfast you had. Amen. And so who drove here this morning? Amen. Now, imagine not having any shelter. Imagine not having any place to live. And not only dealing with that for yourself, but you having two or three or four children that you have to care for. Now, my family grew up in Wayne and Chester County, and they've been blessed. We've lived there for 30 years, and whatever they wanted was in the refrigerator, and whatever they need, and they're both 28 and 24, and guess what? They sent us their Christmas list to us today. They both pay their own rent, thank the Lord. But they still send their Christmas lists. But what if you didn't have anybody to send a Christmas list to? And so the people we serve at Bridge of Hope are those individuals who are facing homelessness on an everyday journey. Many of them are trying to do the right thing living on the low wages that they're living on, but they can barely pay the rent, and they may be one foot out the door, or they may be out the door. And so Bridge of Hope steps in. We have social workers who are there. We have people like myself who engage churches like your own, and we ask churches to help us be a neighbor for that group. Because how many of us had parents or a support group from family or someone to help us along the way. 
Just like Pastor Jesse prayed for me, my mother used to pray for me because I was a bad kid. So I kept my mother on her knees. But her prayers helped me elevate to where I am today. Somebody, all of us, somewhere had a support group who we could call on, who we could talk to, who advised us along the way. So neighboring for us is having a support group of six to 10 people in the church who will work with one family. Could be a mother with two or three children. Could be a family, mother and a father. Could be, in some cases, even a grandmother raising her grandchildren. We're helping a, a church family in the Oxford community not too far from you now that is working with, possibly working with one of our churches and helping a family in the area. So, so homelessness affects all of Chester County. But I want to remind you in the word of God, because we are in church, so there, there is a word from God, and Pastor Jesse's going to preach, but I just want to remind you of this word. Matthew 25, 35 through 40 reminds us the question was asked, when, when, did, when did I feed you? When did I clothe you? When did I house you? When you fed one of my brothers, you fed me. When you clothed me, one of my brothers, you clothed me. When you housed one of my brothers, you housed me. So as we treat our brothers and sisters and care for them, it is important that we realize we're helping and glorifying God because that's how God would treat us. And so please continue to help Bridge of Hope in what we do, and rather it's neighboring, donations are praying for us. And right now I ask for a prayer request because finding affordable housing for the people we work with in the Chester County area is almost impossible. Matter of fact, finding housing is almost impossible. But through the power of prayer, we know we will find a way to help those who are in the search for affordable housing. So thank you again. God bless you. You are wonderful people. I thank you for the hospitality. When I came in the door, some of the gentlemen met me. I asked them if they were behaving. I won't put the one guy out. He said, well, I'm married, so I got to behave. <laughs> I agree with that, but even my wife would tell you, she prays for me because every day I don't get it right. But thank you again. God bless you. Love, peace, and joy. Thank you. One of you guys in the back corner, just could you pop over to the kitchen and grab me a bottle of water? Just, I, don't, I don't care who. One of you fine servants, you can arm wrestle over it. Wanted to, uh, wanted to start the service today, or start the sermon today, um, with uh, a quick reminder 
or, or some, for some of you this will be an announcement, um, we're going to be running membership classes here at Waterway Church in January. Uh, for the junior high and senior high kids, we'll have that during Sunday school, uh, and Carrie Johnson's going to be teaching that. And in January and February, I'm going to be teaching a membership class during, uh, during the 9.30 Sunday school hour as well. So if any of you are uh, interested in checking that out, talk to me. Oh, John, you are a glorious servant of the Lord. Even if you give a bottle of cold water to a preacher, it's as if you are serving the Lord. It's not cold. Oh, well then. Oh, thank you, John. I want to start today. We are going to get to Revelation, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, what God showed to the Apostle John. But I want to start with Psalm 37. And I'm just going to read this for you. I want to read you a couple of verses. Psalm 37 has 40 verses in it. I'm just going to pick a couple of them and read them to you. This is written by King David, okay? And so this was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ, 3,000 years ago. Here's what David wrote. David wrote, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret. When men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I'm reading from the uh, New International Version, the one that was published in 1984. There's a word in there used a couple of times that maybe we don't use very often unless you're a guitar player. We say, do not fret. Over and over, David says, yes, there are people around you. He calls them evil men who seem to be succeeding in their plots, who seem to be having a pretty good go at life. David says, do not fret about these evil men because their lives will scatter like dead grass. Do not fret about these evil men because God is watching you and he will make sure that your righteousness shines through. Do not fret when things look bad. Do not pursue wrath, it says, because God will uphold your cause. Keep this in mind today as we study what is frankly kind of the last, hmm, how would I say this? The last of the tormenting chunks of Revelation. Next week, we're going to get into Revelation 19 and 20 and 21, which is all hallelujahs. Today, we're going to wrap up some of the judgment of the Lord. Remember what David said even before Jesus came. Do not fret when evil men seem to succeed in their plans. All right, so as I get started, I need to let you know that there are three main sources that have been very, very helpful for me as I've been studying through this, uh, through this series. One is a set of commentaries called the New Interpreter's Bible, and it's fun. It's very figurative. It gives a lot of really large themes, big pictures of what's being talked about in Revelation. 
Another series that I've been enjoying is uh, John MacArthur's New Testament commentary. Now, I myself am not necessarily a big follower of John MacArthur, but I, MacArthur, but I like his commentary on Revelation because it's a good balance against the New Interpreter's Bible. It's very literal. He works a little harder to try to sort out details, connecting symbols to specific people and places. And so it's interesting for me. If you'd like to study more deeply, you can borrow one of my copies of the New Interpreter's Bible or the John MacArthur Bible and study them together. Um, but a third resource that's been very helpful for me has been the work of Leon Zimmerman. Some of you remember Leon. He preached here back in January. He talked about silos. Do you remember that? He talked about echo chambers. And Leon put together a series of videos on the book of Revelation that are being used by Eastern Mennonite missions in times when it's difficult to travel around the world to get to the missionaries who are in the farther reaches of their countries, there are these videos available where he teaches through Revelation, and he's doing it even more quickly than I am. He has 15-minute blocks that just cover a chapter or two, and he gives big outlines. And so I need to give him credit for this outline that I'm about to show you. He suggests when studying Revelation 17 and 18 that we need to keep in mind the big picture and the big themes of Revelation and not just get stuck on details. He says, evil is being judged and people are being called to turn to God. And so I have a little outline for you. I'd like to throw that up on the screen here. Here's a quick outline for those of you who are still trying to settle yourselves in Revelation. Here's a quick outline of Revelation chapters 12 through 20. And you'll see why it's bowed out like this. In Revelation 12, Satan is introduced. In Revelation 13, Two beasts are introduced, and a little bit is talked about them. We've talked about these things. In Revelation 14, Babylon is introduced. In Revelation 15 and 16, which Pastor Steve got to preach about last week, woo! there were these bowl judgments where terrible things happen on the earth because God caused them as judgments against the evilness of humanity. But then as Revelation 17 and 18 comes back around. Babylon, which was introduced in Revelation 14, Babylon is destroyed. We will read about this today in Revelation 17 and 18. Next week, we'll talk about two beasts being destroyed in Revelation 19, and we'll see Satan is destroyed in Revelation 20. This is an outline that we need to keep in mind as we go through this. We remember Psalm 37. We remember this outline of what's happening. And the clear message is this. God is speaking through John. And John wrote this book of Revelation. We get to read it today, but you'll remember at the beginning of Revelation, there are seven churches that are addressed specifically. They were churches that existed in John's time. They were mostly in Asia Minor, a lot around the area that we would currently call Turkey and that, that part of the world. The clear message is this, that John is writing initially to those seven churches. God is speaking to them, and he basically says, you are experiencing so much trouble and so much challenge from the godless systems around you and God says, I want you to know that these godless systems are headed to judgment. They will not last forever. This is where we're going. And so, as we get more specific, I would invite you to turn to Revelation 17 in your Bible. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to go quickly. But here in Revelation 17, it's also up on the screen. For those of you who would like to see it up on the screen. John, who is being given this revelation by the Lord... John, who's given this revelation, says that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, if you're a little bit lost, you can think back to what Steve preached about last week. If you didn't get to hear that sermon, it's online. Check out the Waterway Church channel on YouTube. 
But there were seven judgments that came. Each of those judgments was brought by an angel. Now John says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, John, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now remember, church, this is symbolic language here. It will become clear, but just so that you know, this is not about sexual adultery. This is not about wine that comes from grapes. This is not about being drunk on alcohol. There is symbolism here, and it says in verse 3, the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Do you remember in Scripture if that ever happened before? There was someone else who was carried off into the wilderness, and they saw a great picture of evil. Do you remember? It was Jesus right after his baptism. Do you recall that? Jesus was carried away. Satan came to him and tempted him. Jesus resisted him, and the angels took care of him. John was carried away in the spirit into a wilderness. He says, there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. I could show you all kinds of pictures from history about how people have imagined this to look. It says in verse 4, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Now remember, this is the third instance of names written on foreheads. If you remember, if we go back a little bit further, there's a whole group of people who have rejected God. And we're told early in Revelation that those people in the end times, those people who reject the Lord, they, they've received for themselves and they've chosen to do it. They've received this mark on their forehead, the mark of the beast. It's the mark of humanity. It's the mark 666, something like that. So there's a mark on their forehead. And we're told that Jesus comes back with people who have been marked for the Lord and they have the name of the Lord written on their forehead, not by accident, but because they've chosen to follow the Lord. And now here, this woman has a name on her forehead, and says, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Now, this Babylon, this is not a literal woman. It's not a person. This is a picture. It's a picture here of wealth, of power, of luxury. It is the picture of the systems of the world which are aligned against our Lord. Why does it look like a prostitute? Well, what is prostitution? It is selling yourself. And the picture that we're given here is that the world has sold itself for something that is not God. This isn't about sex at all. Now, let's go down a little bunny trail to the first hint of this Babylon thing as we try to sort out what is this Babylon? What does this mean? What are we thinking about? It's all related to a guy named Nimrod. Now, Babylon was built by Nimrod. He wasn't just a kid in your seventh grade gym class, but he was the great-grandson of Noah. You remember Noah, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 9 and 10, we can read about these characters. Babylon, the city, there, there has been, and it is no more exactly, but there was a city called Babylon. It was a powerful city. It was the beginning and the middle of an empire. But Babylon, the city, was built by Nimrod who was a great-grandson of Noah. He was the grandson of Ham, who was cursed by Noah, and who was also known as Canaan, the father of the Canaanites. So Nimrod is a Canaanite. If you remember, the Israelites have been fighting the Canaanites 
for centuries, all through the Old Testament, you can read about this. Genesis 10 says about Nimrod that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Are any of you here Nimrods? Some of you were talking about your hunting conquests this morning. Well, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. It says the first centers in Genesis 10.10, the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna, and Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Reason. Nimrod's a great hunter. He's going out across the plains, the great-grandson of Noah, and he's building cities. What's the big deal? Well, let's keep reading the Old Testament. In Genesis 11, there's a famous story many of you have heard. It says the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Remember, this is Nimrod going with these folks, leading these folks. And this is not too far after Noah's flood, after the entire world had been cleansed of wickedness, after the only people who remained were Noah and his family, after everything had been cleaned up. Now people were multiplying again. And here, Nimrod, Noah's great-grandson, is one of those people going out into the world, found a plain called Shinar and settled there. The people said to each other, now remember, this is just a couple generations after Noah. They said, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used bricks instead of stone. They used tar instead of mortar. Stone and mortar is not as solid and not as easy to manage as bricks and tar. These people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may, na- may make a name for ourselves. I'm going to say that again because I butchered it and it's really important. These people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And if you're reading your Bible or if you're following along on your screen, Underline for ourselves. These people say otherwise. If we don't make a name for ourselves, we'll be scattered over the whole face of the earth. We're talking in Revelation about people who have names written on their foreheads, right? People who follow after the Lord have his name on their forehead. People who sell out and cave and decide to worship the beast have his name on their forehead. Babylon, this this whole thing being talked about here in Revelation 17, we're talked about, it's symbolized by a woman with a name on her forehead. These people are saying, we need to have a name. And instead of looking to the Lord, which they should have done, I mean, all of them would have known who Noah was. Instead of looking to the Lord, they said, we need to make a name for ourselves. This story in Genesis is about idolatry. And so God looked down, he saw what they were doing, he confused their language, and God shut down the program. It says in Genesis 11, verse 8, the Lord scattered these people there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. Later, it's called Babylon. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So these people making a name for themselves, trying to build something to make a big deal out of who they are, they were not destroyed. They were sent out there around the world. And today we find the same thing, right? Evil does not have a geographical center right now. Evil's everywhere. People making a name for themselves are everywhere. This is a universal reality. And these people who were the genetic origins of the, the Canaanites, these Canaanites have fought against Israel, God's people forever. Israel, in fact, 
about 600 years before Jesus was carried back into Babylon, after they had their own nation, after David wrote, don't fret when the evil people get their way. Hundreds of years after David, the Israelites had turned away from God and they were carried back to Babylon where they all cried out for a deliverer, for a savior, for a Messiah. And all the people John was writing to at the time of Revelation, those seven churches, they would have known this history. And so remember what we talked about before. Remember the context of Revelation 17 and 18. It's not coming out of nowhere. It's part of the Bible. It's in our New Testament. It's after the Old Testament. And much of it is yet to come. These names on foreheads don't happen by accident. We choose who we align ourselves with. And this is why we keep underlining all the places where it talks about people doing things for themselves. John says in Revelation, back to Revelation 17, verse 6, he says, I saw that, that this, this Babylon, this symbol for the world's corruption, I saw that this, this woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Babylon has been opposed to God's people forever. You understand, right, that there is a system of the way things work in the world, and it's not the way that God wants things to work. We must make a choice. How will we live? John says, then I saw her. I saw that woman drunk with the blood of God's holy people with the mark of Babylon on her forehead, I saw her and I was greatly astonished. This is why I believe that she's compared to a prostitute. She's astonishing. She's interesting. Perhaps she's alluring. The angel said to John, verse 7, the angel kind of snaps him out of it. John, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and of the ten horns. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we get some explanations. Now we get perhaps some clarity. Verse 8, the beast which you saw once was... Now is not, and yet will come. Kind of a riddle, isn't it? But how many times have you heard our Lord talked about the one who was and who is and who is forevermore? Here they're saying, look, this, this, beach, this, this beast which this woman rides on was, now is not, and then will come back. Up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. There is going to be deception and people in the world are going to be wrapped up in this evil. It says in verse nine, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, this beast has seven heads. These are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now Rome was called the city on seven hills. Perhaps there are some comparisons to Rome. The people in John's time would have said, Rome, that's where things are really bad. That's the center of the world. In fact, it was the Roman Empire that was the political power of the area. But this is bigger than even that. They have seven kings, lots of symbols getting layered on top of each other. Five of the kings have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was, now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seventh and is going to his destruction. There are political things happening in real places. The 10 horns, verse 12, that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for who, one, who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. And so there's going to be a consolidation of power. All of these 10 kings are going to come together and Babylon is running all of it, riding all of it. These people, 13, have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. And so all of the world's governments will give power to Satan's 
representative. It says in verse 14, they will wage war against the Lamb, capital L, talking here about Jesus. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. You sang about that this morning, right? Do you remember? He will triumph over them because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do not fret when evil men seem to be having their way. There is a time where the King of kings and the Lord of lords will straighten things out. And along with him come his called, his chosen, and faithful followers. Verse 15, the angel said to John, the waters you saw where where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. In other words, she is over all people who are not with the Lord. She has tentacles reaching into all corners of culture, of geography, of politics. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now, this is really interesting, isn't it? Sometimes as God's people, we get really worked up saying, well, what do we do about all this? Right? Sometimes they say, well, we need to get ready to fight. I mean, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, he's going to be coming. Is he going to find us ready? Well, I think one of the messages that we can take out of this section here of Revelation is that we're not the ones doing the fighting at all. You don't have to line up and fight until Jesus is back in the flesh, standing right there. And then the commands will be very clear. It makes me concerned about anyone who's forming a militia today. Here is this woman sitting over all the nations. She's riding on this beast, the world system over all the nations, this beast with 10 horns and all these heads and all this will bring her to ruin. Evil will turn against evil. See, this is how we know that God is really above all of it. He's sitting back like a chess master just watching it all happen. Let the beast and the woman, let them fight it out for a while. Oh, it's fascinating when you, when you think about, we're not even getting specific about this political system or that country or that ruler, are we? What do we just see here? We see a big picture of God at work. The beast will hate the woman, will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. The world's systems will crumble and Satan's going to help do it. Why? Look at verse 17. Remember this king of kings, this lord of lords. Why? Verse 17, the Lord has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. God says, I've got all of this. God says, you go ahead. You, you Babylon, you, you beast, Satan, you go ahead. You, you've got some power for a little while, and I'm going to let you kill each other until I come back and set things right. You see what's happening here? Do you see the incredible power of God? I, I know God calls us, no doubt, church, God calls us to be his ambassadors here on the earth. God calls us to live lives that are holy. God calls us to live for him, and he gives us his Bible, and Jesus gave us his teaching so that we know how to do that. But I don't think we have to get all worked up wondering how are we ever going to win this war for the Lord? Because it doesn't look like the battle is ours. It really looks like the battle is the Lord's. God is putting into all kinds of people's hearts all kinds of things that are happening. They're going to tear each other apart. And then God's going to say, I win. John says, the woman, or the angel says to John, verse 18, the woman you saw, the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. In other words, all those power that be, all those evil men that you might be concerned about today, 
we have one more reason not to fret because God will see it all destroyed. And then in Revelation 18, more justice is delivered. John says, after that, after the beast destroyed Babylon, after Satan, frankly, destroyed all, destroyed all the systems of the world, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. This is a glorious angel. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Look, the, the prophecy continues. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. See, God is still at work, even in Babylon, even in this terrible city. God has people there. And before the end, he says, okay, guys, time is up. Get out of there. I don't want you to be punished along with the rest of the people. See, God has people everywhere. Sometimes we worry, am I in the wrong place? Am I in a place that's going to be judged that, that God's going to like accidentally sweep me away with all these bad people around me? Here's a reminder that no, there'll, there'll be a warning. When it's time to go, God will say, get out. Happened in Sodom. Happened with Babylon. When the kings of the earth, verse 9, who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. So the kings will look at the great fallen city and wonder how it ever got this bad. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Oh, this is hard to imagine in 2021, isn't it? <laughs> cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind, made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense. Oh, frankincense and myrrh. Man, Jesus is everywhere. Wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. The merchants will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city. Dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Can you imagine how this happens? I can. The last two years, have we seen commerce slow down and stall? Anybody scratch their heads? We're just seeing, just, just from one little virus with a couple of little variants, we're seeing how the systems of the world can be paused pretty dramatically, right? What happens when all of these judgments happen? When God shuts down the whole city, you can see how the kings would be concerned. You can see how the merchants of the earth would be concerned. And now it says every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. A couple weeks ago, 
I don't remember where we were, but I caught a glimpse of 60 Minutes, that Sunday evening television program loved by grandmas and grandpas everywhere. I hadn't watched 60 Minutes in some time, but there was an article or there was a, a highlight on there. They were talking about the shipping challenges, especially in the port of Los Angeles. Don't know if any of you saw that. That was helpful for me because I don't understand how shipping and logistics works. That's not my world. I I don't get it. It's hard to understand why all those ships have to wait in line. Why don't they just unload them? People have been driving trucks and working cranes forever, haven't they? What's the problem? Well, see, I don't know warehouses. Maybe, Carl, you could tell me more about that later. But they did a hold. Everybody, what's the problem? Well, it's the truckers. They're not. Well, no, it's the dock people. They're. Not, well, no, it's the shipping people. They're. Well, no, it's Amazon's problem because they're shipping stuff everywhere. And it's just. Too, well, no, it's LA's problem because nobody wants to invest in infrastructure. <sighs> All of that. The bottom line is, there's a whole bunch of merchants that are pretty far off, looking at LA, saying, "What's going on? We're not making our money anymore." Just a shadow of things yet to come. Just a shadow of the kind of terrible reality that's coming for the merchants of the world. These sea captains, they said, woe to you, great city. We all got rich off of you. But then these sea captains, even though they didn't believe in the Lord, they could see the reality. Now remember, all through Revelation, we've been talking about people. God has been trying to show up for people to get people's attention so that people will turn to the Lord, love him, and not have to be judged. Over and over and over, God, through all of these calamities, keeps calling and saying, turn to me, come to me, I love you, I want you to be mine. And people, what do they do? They keep cursing God and turning away from him. And now even these sea captains, look what they say in verse 20. They say, rejoice over this destruction, you heavens. See, these guys are aware that there's a heaven there. Rejoice, you people of God. These merchants from far off, they can see the smoke rising to the air. They say, well, there you go, heaven. You're finally getting what you wanted, right? Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. The merchants look and they say, even with their perspective, their worldly humanist perspective, they look and say, well, she's getting what she deserved, isn't she? The world is getting what it deserves, isn't it? The city is getting what it, Babylon is getting what it deserves. The world's systems, they're all getting what it deserves. Heaven, you don't need to fret over the schemes of evil men. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. These people still will not turn to the Lord, even though they acknowledge that God is there. And so we see justice, don't we? We understand that this is justice. This is not just the moving of a a God who just doesn't like these people very much. No, God has been calling out saying, come to me, come to me. And they say, no, God says, fine, you will burn says in verse 21, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone, threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. 
In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Revelation 17 and 18 tell us that there is evil in the world and that there are evil systems in our world. They're named Babylon. And there are certainly evil cities and evil individuals, and those can be wrapped up in the same thing. People have imagined and done studies, and well, maybe this is talking about Babylon. Maybe this is about Rome. Maybe this is Babylon. Maybe this is New York. Maybe this is Babylon. Perhaps this is, I've heard people say it's the Catholic Church, and there are some interesting things that are kind of connected there that, you know, with the Vatican City and some of that kind of stuff. I've heard other people say that, well, no, this is just larger systems altogether. The bottom line is there's evil stuff going on, and it's all going to stop, however you name it. Right here in Revelation 17 and 18, it's called Babylon, and it will be stopped. So here's my summary of all of it. As you sit here on a Sunday in Advent and say, who cares? We've known since we were little kids in Sunday school that evil is going to be destroyed and that good is going to win. Well, you've heard that lesson, church, for a long time, but have you believed it yet? Here's the bottom line of what's happening in Revelation 17 and 18. See, God has worked through history to call people to him, but people rejected him. God sent a flood to get their attention. People rejected him again, trying to make a name for themselves. God established a people, called them Israel, gave them a land and his law, spoke to them through prophets. They turned against him too and were carried away from the land God gave them to live in exile. Where? In Babylon. That nation of Israel, displaced from its homeland, waited for a savior. God sent Jesus. They wouldn't recognize him. But in this time of Advent, we symbolically wait for his arrival again. Jesus has saved all who turned to him, rescued us from our sins, even though we have nothing of our own that we can be proud of. But we still live on a broken earth. And many in our world today have rejected God, still trying to make a name for themselves, still trying to save ourselves. How many people do you know who are not content to turn to the Lord and have his name on their forehead? Instead, it's, well, I'm going to figure this out myself. If I can just get in the right habits, I'll be fine. If I can just work the right system, read the right book, the right author, find the right new thing, I'll be fine. If I could just have the right stuff, then I'll be fine. I won't have to strive anymore. If I just get connected with the right people, I'll be fine. If we could just get through this virus, we'll be fine. No, no, we're not fine unless we come to the Lord. And yet how many people do you know are trying to do it themselves? Looking for what next thing can I do? If I just finally get in shape, then I'll be done. If we finally get out of debt, then we'll be done. It's good to be in shape. It's good to get out of debt. But you know people who are living for that. And that's garbage. It's going to burn on the shores someday. We are still, we are still amidst the people who are trying to save themselves. This is why everybody is going insane because they're finding that no matter how good the technology gets, no matter how much money they get, no matter how controlling they can be over their environment, I could turn my lights on in the garage by pushing a button from the mountains. No matter how much we can manipulate our world, we are still face to face every day with the reality that we are not in control of the ultimate things. God has been telling us this through his prophets and through his words since the beginning of time. And still, most of us don't listen. Still, most of us think that if we can just get there, and you're there, 
and your there and your there might be different than what I think there is. But if we can just get there, then finally we can rest. Finally, there will be peace. This has been happening forever, but oh my, are we ever in a generation that has decided that we can save ourselves? This is why politics is such a passion for so many. Because whether you're the one running for office or voting for the candidates, people have fallen into the idea that if we just get this right, we can finally save ourselves. Doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way. Many in our world today have rejected God, and we haven't done it outright, but essentially we've said, I've got this. Church, Jesus will come back again. This is what Revelation is all about. We already have a Savior, but he hasn't yet brought the full force of his power to this earth. One day, Babylon will crumble, but not yet. In the meantime, we want to connect all the details. We're curious. We want to know, well, what does this mean in Revelation? Which city is that, that Babylon with the, with the seven hills and the ten kings and the one who were and, and who are not yet, but then they're going to be? We want to know what we should do when these last days come. Revelation simply reminds us that God orchestrates things so well that evil helps to wipe out evil. Jesus physically, materially shows up and he moves. There won't have to be any faith in Jesus anymore because we will be seeing him. It will be actuality. There will be no guesswork. It will be direct. We don't have to run around right now with the big, what are we going to do in the end of time? Let's just wait and see because it'll be very clear then. Right now, we know that we can live the way he called us to live. It's not rocket science, but we get wrapped up because we'd like to be in control. And to be in control, we need to know the future. Until this all happens, we just need to act the way Jesus taught people to act. We need to live with love as our primary motivation. And we need to worship the one true God because all the others are going to burn. Let me ask you an annoying and obnoxious question while our band gets ready to lead us in a closing song. You know, there, there's all the uh, true meaning of Christmas stuff. And that's good. We need to think about that all the time. I'm going to skip over that for a minute. And I'm just going to ask you, if you celebrate God as much as you celebrate this season, I think this is something really good for us to think about right now. As I look around at lighted trees and poinsettias and all the fun stuff that I've helped to create, quite frankly. Christmas has a way. Even in our godless society, Christmas has a way of creeping into every area of life, doesn't it? Now, for those of us who are Christians, we say we do Christmas because of Christ. And so therefore, we sometimes kind of put an umbrella over all this and say, well, we're doing it all for Jesus. Eh, maybe. Chocolate candy for Jesus. Christmas gets into everything, and I like it. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I like it. Christmas gets into my calendar. There are things I'm not doing in December that I do most every other month because, hey, it's Christmas and we're really busy. 
There's stuff that I'm doing only because it's Christmas. People that I see only because it's Christmas. And I don't think it really has much to do with Jesus. The music that we listen to, I like Christmas music. I'm neck deep in it right now. You know what? There's not as many Christmas songs about Jesus anymore as there used to be. So many of the really fun ones. I mean, you guys do a really great job bringing out the good stuff. But have you noticed, like, you just turn it on to one of the Christmas stations, one of the stations that's like 103.3 out of Lancaster is one of those that's playing Christmas carols all the time. They're not playing Jesus songs. They're playing Christmas songs. It takes a long time of listening to hear anything that talks about the Lord. It's all about trees, mistletoe. All I want for Christmas is you. I like those songs. But they're not about Jesus, and yet they've crept into everything. Our entertainment. I mean, if you still have a TV with like regular TV channels, It's a Wonderful Life was on last night. Why? Well, because it's Christmas. They don't play that in July, unless you've got some really bottom-of-the-rung kind of TV channel. (laughs) Is your spending different in December than it is the rest of the year? Is your budget different? Do you spend them? I do. I spend differently on my wife, my child, and on all of you than I ever did before. We take pictures of ourselves, put them on little pieces of cardboard, and go to an incredible amount of trouble to give them to each other because it's Christmas. Not for Easter, when Christ arose. All the food, there's food everywhere, certain stuff we give ourselves permission to eat, permission to make, only at Christmas. Decorating your home. Any of you have lights on the outside of your house? Keep them up all year. See what somebody says in July. And if you have a tree, I do. I like it. Uh, no, no. I love it. I love having that live Christmas tree in my house. Well, it was live a week ago. I love having that tree in my house. It smells things up. Christmas gets into everything, right? Unless you're one of those people that's actively avoiding it, Christmas gets into everything. Here's what I want to ask you. In light of the fact that we serve a Lord who is going to wipe out all things evil, in light of the, world, in light of the fact that we serve a Lord who's going to see Babylon burn. In light of the fact that we are called to worship him with all that we are, I wonder, does the Lord soak into your life as much as Christmas does? Do you let him? I mean, 12 months out of the year, are are you listening to music about the Lord? Are you entertaining yourself for the Lord? Are you running your calendar for the Lord? Are you spending for the Lord? Are you making your food for the Lord? I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but have you even thought about it? I mean, at Christmas time, everything just kind of stops because it's Christmas. It really is, is kind of a worship thing, isn't it? When every area of our life is touched. Well, let's just ask ourselves that difficult question. What are we worshiping? And if we're truly worshiping the Lord, why do we stop when the tree dries out? Does everything that you do, everything in your life scream, Jesus is Lord? Because all of creation will someday. In Revelation 19, I'm going to end with this, and we're going to come back to it next week with the first seven verses. After all this, after Babylon burned, John says, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. 
He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. Let me hear you. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Not just at Christmas time, all the time. That's what worship is. That's what we're called to. That's what your life has to be. Stand and sing with us. Stand and sing with us. Can you lead us in a song?